The year is 1934. Mother, the year is 1934. <laughs> oh my. Decided to channel the young British chap. Oh, I hate him so. You hate him so. <laughs> What's your fun fact? Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, my fun fact is that in 1934, the American all around female super athlete, Babe Didrikson Zacharias. That's a wild name. I've ever heard. Pitched a hitless inning for the Philadelphia A's in their exhibition preseason game against the Brooklyn Dodgers. Damn. So this is another another instance of uh, of a woman just showing up to baseball and like kicking ass. Also, this woman doesn't play baseball. She was an Olympic gold medalist in the hurdles and javelin, and then later became a ten LPGA uh, winning golf golfer. Wild! What a career. This, yeah, that's why she's a super athlete. Also, what a rad name. So speaking of embarrassments, at the 1934 Oscars, the presenter opened the envelope and he said, come on and get it, Frank. And Frank Capra got out of his seat to go get the Oscar, only to very embarrassingly find out that Frank Lloyd had won. This is what, this is what happens when you have too many Franks. Too right? many Franks. Like, like people are like, let me be frank with you. Don't. We have too many of them already. And it's funny that you should mention that because Frank Lloyd did win the Oscar for both Best Picture and Best Director. And a third one. For Cattle Hunter. No, it's not Cavalcade. Me. Hello. I'm one of your hosts, Mavis Evergreen. I'm going to talk about feminism and socialism and how war is bad, actually. And nationalism is also bad. Uh, I'm your host, Andy Reyes, and I'm going to try to talk about things historically about how war is bad and nationalism is bad. I try to talk about film history as well as like direction and stuff like that as well. And, you know, try to bring a minority lens to as much of this as I can. Although, uh, once again, we find ourselves in a sea. That's not true. There is one black blues band. Yeah, a whole band. A whole band. Of what I assume. Playing the sinner's music. Yeah, jazz. Jazz. Very early jazz, too. Um, Cavalcade, uh, which came out in 1933, directed by Frank Lloyd, starring Diana Winyard and Clifford Brook and Herbert Munden and Una O'Connor and John Warburton and Margaret Lindsay and Frank Lawton and Ursula Jeans, is a pre-code epic drama uh, that follows the lives of an incredibly rich British family as a whole host of tragedies happen to them they are subject to the boer war in which nobody dies i would less say they're subject to the boer war as uh they fight in a boer war that really doesn't affect them that really doesn't affect them because nobody dies then their eldest son dies on the titanic shortly after getting married and then their youngest son doesn't get married and then dies in world war one and they're very sad about it happy new year slut this is a two-hour movie. <laughs> this is another movie in which it's two hours for no reason because it has no plot, really. Re-entered the world of Cimarron, and it's interesting that both of these movies start with a C. Um, like, this is a movie that its its entire purpose of being is to follow a cast of characters as time marches on, which is where it gets the name Cavalcade because over the course of the movie, you have these shots of, like, a medieval... Uh, if you guys didn't know, a cavalcade is basically like a procession of cavalry units 
to show the march of time, right? So every time the year changes, we get to see it like for no reason, a medieval accompaniment just marching across the screen like it's another year. Fun fact, there are eight time skips in this movie. Eight time skips. Eight time skips. Three of them in quick procession. Yeah, during uh, World War One, I, I believe, right? And I would just call that one really long time skip. I uh, know they give yeah, us three yeah. different years, and so it gets three different time skips. I, I feel like where we start, and this is one of the rare times we do, this is where the movie starts, because it gives us a thesis statement. Oh, I forgot about that, yes. It does. At the very beginning, this was back when, you know, we still had text openers, you know, similar to, you know, what Star Wars does today. I, again, I do love a thesis statement because it really lets you know what the movie's trying to say and whether or not it fails on its own terms. Yeah, for sure. The thesis statement itself, I think, is longer than this, but like the first, because it was like three slides, but the first slide is like the big one. This is the story, this is the thesis statement. This is the story of a home and a family. History seen through the eyes of a wife and mother whose love tempers both fortune and disaster. And for that thesis statement, these women do nothing. They... Well, they're doing, they're doing the most important thing a woman can do. Staying at home and not influencing one way or another. I thought, I thought this movie was going to be about men being kind of outrageous and like these women having to pick and choose battles and things like that. And never once in this movie does a woman influence a man in any way possible. You thought this was going to be Sense and Sensibility. I thought this was going to be like Sense and Sensibilities. Or, you know, any other, take your pick of a Jane Austen or a Bronte novel, but. Correct. None of, again, much like in, uh, I was going to say Beloved, but that's incorrect. Uh, Cimarron. None of these actors, characters, choose to do anything. Things simply happen around them. And they have never once chosen to do a task. Well, and, you know, this is, we, we saw the same thing in the Grand Hotel, I think, right? Where, like, this is, th- this movie suffers from a combination of problems, which is the problem that Cimarron had, which is characters don't do anything, things happen to them. But also it suffers from the problem that um, Grand Hotel had, in, which is that this is a play turned into a movie. And because of that, a lot of the context that a play would give you very elegantly through dialogue is muddled by these actors performing naturally, naturalistically, as opposed to like, you know, in big bombastic acting, but also muddled by the way that the director decided to cut actions. Whereas in a play, you know, somebody would just run in and be like, Lady Macbeth just fell out of a tower. And Macbeth is like, no, scene, right? Like this movie decides to show it to us, but it does it in such a way that it is like hard to parse what is happening. A great example of this is there is a scene in which a butler turned bar owner turned drunk gets hit by a car or a carriage. A carriage. Although they were called cars at the time. There we go. And we did not know that's what happened because it's him standing in a road, a very, a carriage goes by, I think an entirely different road. I do think there was a dummy there or something. I saw it hit something. I did not see and, that. And my reaction was not, oh my God, this character died. My reaction was, oh my God, that carriage hit somebody. That yeah. wasn't supposed to happen. And then from there, we go to another scene in which a different thing happens. And then after that, somebody informs his wife that he's been hit by a carriage. And this is, I think for most of the actions and deaths, what happens is we are to intuit somebody died through like really bad cutting because nothing happens in the same scene. Every scene is shot independently and there's like no interplay. It's it's very, it's non-cohesive. 
Yeah. Right? And like... It is hard to tell what is happening to somebody, but making that worse is there's always a scene in between finding out somebody's died and like their death scene, which honestly kind of makes you not know whether or not people are dead. Because you're like, I feel like we should have gotten some immediate feedback and it just doesn't happen. Or even just a character saying, oh God, he's dead. Dead. But you don't get that. Instead, you you, usually you get a time skip too. Yeah. Like somebody dies, you get a time skip and you're like, I guess it's been six years. I wonder how that person's doing. And then somebody's like, you know, the last time I saw you was when old Alfred totally got owned by that carriage. No, died. see, that's where you're wrong. There's going to be a scene in which there's going to be like two people being like, oh, yeah, so we're doing British slang. What we're saying kind of has nothing to do with anything. And the next scene, they'll be like, wasn't it depressing when Alfred died? And you'll be like, cool. That- <laughs> Oh yeah, I guess that is like a warning, a warning to anybody who wants to watch this movie, like turn subtitles on because everybody is speaking in like very fast, like stiff upper lip, posh British. And like, I don't think since watching a trailer for, what's that one popular British show that everybody liked? Oh, um, you are talking about the old lady who lives on Downton Abbey. Yes, Downton Abbey, thank you. I have not since seeing a trailer for Downton Abbey heard people speaking this shittily <laughs> for so long and like i'm uh no i'm not gonna say this i think british sounds like shit sometimes it's when they're talking really fast for me anyway like i think there's beauty to most languages but this was so hard to parse it was quite impossible to parse also the auto the like audio quality just isn't there because it's a very old movie oh. and it did get restored in 2017 but even the restoration is rough the, yeah, it wasn't given the same, I think, level of attention and care that, you know, like, I think a more popular movie would have been given from this time. And there were more popular movies that came out in this year, in this time, that have been given better restorations. Agree. It's quite hard to keep up with. And the thing is, is in a play, a lot of this chatter is, like, in jokes about society and stuff at the time, but we don't have that context. So it is quite meaningless most of the time what they're talking they're also speaking what i feel is contemporary slang contemporary for the era that the movie is presenting i mean because the movie takes place over the course of like you know late victorian to early edwardian britain you know and like the senses and sensibilities (laughs) of slang in those times changes a lot over the course of what what is i think two decades and the movie shows this in its dialogue the problem with that is that like this is two decades that are separated from us, the audience, by about a hundred years. Us being me and Mavis, right? There's just like a hundred years of difference. Like these people would will say sentences that I hear and I go, okay, I that can't mean anything. Those are, that is just nonsense. It's spaghetti words. <laughs> Our favorite example being a scene between two lovers in which, <clears throat> if you would do me the honor, oh Andy. Deep down, do you really love me? Oh, Santa. What does that mean? That's not a response. It's it's possible. It's possible that we misheard and that the subtitles were wrong because we didn't exactly watch this movie through legal legal means. But because I'm not going to pay to watch Cavalcade. Also, it's free on YouTube. So, you know, get on it, Disney. But... Yeah, it, a lot of it is just weird, like, oh, I think this is slang, but I have no, no idea. idea. No context. Like, you have to figure it out using context clues, like the words surrounding it. But when you get, like, there's a scene where two characters are just bantering with each other, just being in love and bantering with each other for about 10 minutes. And, like, by the end of it, I was like, okay, I got the gist of the conversation, but it took me, it took me the entire 10 minutes to really, like, 
figure out that they were just playfully arguing and not genuinely mad at each other. So this movie, I think, has four couples in it. Yes, we've two generations of two couples. Yeah, and only the old rich couple gets to be happy. Well, they're the only ones who make it to the end of the movie. It's true. As far as we know. What we've learned is old money keeps you safe. Old money keeps you safe, unless you're new generation. Something we could talk about right now is the, the distinction in this film between the lower class and the upper class, which is there isn't much because this film decides to focus almost entirely on the Marriott family and the lower class um, Bridges family is kind of left by the wayside, but... The, the, the way they portray the Bridges family isn't even accurate to like poverty during the Victorian and Edwardian times. Because well, a lot of people didn't have like running water and that was a time of like really diasporate incomes. Well, even, even, even the Bridges family who are in the film seen as poor. I would consider the Marriott family, which is the primary family of the film, to be upper class. For they're sure. not lords, but they're... They might as well. They might as well be. Like, they're in that kind of strata of British society in which they have their family has never wanted for money. And the Bridges family, um, one, I think, played by uh, more diasporic actors. I believe the two actors are... Well, one of the actors is British, but is known for playing, you know, like, bumbling fool characters and uh alfred i believe the dad was played by yeah. him and the other character was prominently irish an irish actress don't so, worry she's a servant yeah so they're servants. You would never let the they're, irish be rich in a british film yeah, strictly in the servant class but i think even for a servant class they're doing they're doing well enough that at one point they're they're owners of a bar they're owners of a bar which which puts them you know above poverty above you know, like what, what we would have seen as poverty in Seventh Heaven. This is like, no, that's too low. We can't even go that far down. We have no interest in it. But these, th this family is still subject to two things that the Marriott family would never have to go through. For example, Alfred becoming a drunkard. And it, imp the implication that, you know, he harms his family. Mm -hmm. That is something that the Marriott's never have to go through. Yeah. And they never have to go through anything like that. No, the, the only hardship that the Marriott family has to go through is you know, they're, you know, the death of their children yeah, while well, their kids going off to war or their husband going off to war. But, you know, lower class struggles like, you know, are we going to have enough food or my husband's an alcoholic? They they get to experience that through this servant class. Mm -hmm. But nothing happens to them. Yeah, there there is also a moment in which the Marriott's are upset that their son has fallen in love with the Bridges because they are poverty yeah and lady bridges the mother of the family kind of t lets her know like you know hey the times are changing this is okay now like like and, and that was largely true yeah for, for a woman to marry into an, a higher class family yeah. i think had become more or less accepted yeah. by society at this point in britain a poor boy marrying into a rich family nah. no, no. No, no, no no but a woman can. but a woman can big thing that really epitomizes this for me is that at the beginning of the movie we're celebrating new year's right the turn of the millennium or the turn of the century not the millennium the turn of the century right it's now the year 1900 and the marriott's are celebrating this in their own home but the bridges are celebrating it serving the marriott and at the end of the movie the marriott's are celebrating it in their own home and we don't really get to see what the bridges are doing well it doesn't matter because it doesn't matter uh yeah the bridges are we are to assume doing fine because their child didn't die in war so we don't care about that yeah and it is because he spent so much time with the bridges for the movie to admit that they they never really cared about yeah, them they never really cared the only time we care about the bridges is when they are in despair when their husband is a drunk when their well, when daughter's despair, in love when their despair is touching the lives of yeah 
But if their despair is not touching their lives, then they're not worth talking about. I feel like that's not the worst thing this movie does, though. I, I honestly think that it's kind of the best that the movie could do, given its setting. Yeah. But it still sucks. It like, still sucks. Like, right, like, this this implication that, like, alcoholism is is a poor person's problem. Yeah. A thing that I think is still... Yeah, I was going to say, addiction is still, like, a poor person's a poor person problem. problem. Like, of a, a, course, a homeless person is an addict. Like, that is still a thing we fight with today, mm-hmm. is... Well, the rich would never have, I don't know, pill problems. Yeah. They've never been addicted to anything ever. Looking at you, Brent Biden. What the fuck is that guy's name? Yeah, I don't Frank know. Biden. How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> no, it's, it's just, it's a ridiculous thing to say. Like, addiction is a societal problem that we are not mm-hmm. actually not. dealing with. No. So it affects everyone. Speaking of society, let's talk about... Uh, a war that this movie really gets into that until we watched this, I didn't know much about the Boer War. The Boer Wars. Uh, the Second Boer War specifically. So a little historical context. Britain colonized a lot of the world. <laughs> and so did the Dutch. And a part of the world that they both colonized at the same time was South Africa, which they were constantly fighting over. Uh, at this point in history, uh, the Dutch had um, allowed those states to basically be independent. They were known as the Boer states or the Boer republics. And, but the British was still exercising very tight military control over their African holdings, as well as their other holdings around the world. Um, the height of the British Empire wouldn't be seen until 1922, I believe, which is uh, towards the ending of this film at post yeah. A large portion of this movie takes place while Robert is away in the Boer War. Just something that you need to know about this war is that it sucked and it was bad and it was just two colonial powers fighting each other for dominance over the African, sort of South African country. And a thing that I think is important to talk about specifically in the context of this film is this film is never once concerned with the actual victims of the Boer War, the South African peoples whose land was destroyed and who were put in internment camps and who would be concentration camps. Concentration camps. These were straight up, by definition, concentration camps. First of their kind. Not that's not true, but... This movie doesn't care about that. What's sad about this movie, what the thing this movie cares about is like, oh, isn't it terrible that my husband might die in this war? However, it's, it's depicted, honestly, as, like, a noble war. Yes. As, like, well, the British must because, you know, whatever, whatever. And I think the closest they get to, like, nodding that maybe this isn't fair and this is giving them too much credit is there's a line said by the Irish servant that is, like, where even is Africa? <laughs> like, Why do we care? And the implication is, like, why do we care? And she's, like, literally laughed at by everyone in the movie, sort of showing... I feel like the movie could argue, like, oh, isn't it so terrible? But th- that's not how the movie actually depicts it. No, the movie no. depicts her as being stupid for even bothering to ask. But, but there is, I think there is something to be said about, like, how is this, why, why fight this? Why does it matter? Like, why, obviously it's because it's, it's for the sake of, you know, colonialism and imperialism, right? Like, they don't want to lose the very, very valuable gold deposits that, you know, they are, that they're taking from. Mm-hmm. But for most people, the the reality of what they were told the propaganda was well this is for the sake of the british empire this is about our nationalism a very new but increasingly popular concept and then and slowly through the discussions of the boer war and also world war one in this film we start to see kind of the kernel of what it is that this movie is actually about because it's not about family it's not about tragedy it's not even about women it's not about women it's about nationalism and how great 
British nationalism is. I would say this movie depicts nationalism in that, well, isn't it terrible that our boys have to die, but isn't Britain great still? Yes. <laughs> A sort of uh, Cimarron-esque, well, it's terrible that people died, but it did have to happen. For America to be great. Yeah, nationalism. Um, and I think, I think the key thing that you can sort of take from the movie and how it depicts this is it will be like, ah, yes, this lady is very sad that her children have died and she's crying. But then it will have these long celebratory scenes in which she will still celebrate, like, British nationalism. And we never, this movie never touches on the actual atrocities or the actual, like, darkness of it. It is always cut in such a way of, like, oh, look at these marching boys. Oh, no, a couple of them fell down. Don't worry, Jesus is there. War is a thing that happens in this movie secondhand. It happens in montage. It is it is an event that we can only experience temporally. We can't experience it viscerally. And where, that's where, important where, for the nationalist. Like, well, yeah, where, whereas a better movie would would you know put you in the thick of things and let you experience the terribleness of war. Say like All Quiet on the Western Front would. Let's say they do a montage in which these boots get traded around, yeah. and it does a very good job of demonstrating how terrible and sad it is that that these kids are dying but this movie doesn't we don't get that we don't touch we don't get to touch the war and the war never gets to touch us we get our hands are clean of it but we get to see the way that war affects these this family it specifically the way war affects the rich upper class right because even in britain if you were poor the war affected you much more viscerally the fact that we focus on this family that is in the upper crust like her husband isn't even in the forefront of the war he's like a general who stays in an office yeah kind of egregious that this this movie this movie's laurels are like oh well we're saying war is bad but really we're saying war is unfortunate but necessary yeah war is unfortunate but necessary um and like even the way that it frames like world war one I, I think once we start getting into it is that is that the Germans are at it again, right? Those pesky Germans are at it again, uh, and they're going to cause a world war with these actions, as if, you know, a large part of why Brit like Germany was so aggressive towards Britain was because of their, you know, very aggressive colonialist expansion and also incredibly, like, aggressive, like, military sanctions on Germany and Russia. Like, as if the world, as if Britain was, you know, somehow a pure light in the, in, Oh no, Britain has never done anything to earn this. They simply stepped in because they had to. Like, they, this movie never talks about the politics. It never talks about any of it. And it, it, again, it does that by being like, well, this, is, this isn't about that. It's about family and how this affects the family, but it doesn't. Like, we don't actually get to learn how it affects the family other than like, ah, well, this rich person misses their husband. And it's like, that's nothing. It's not interesting. It's incredibly boring. And also, it's the worst way to look at war. It's, it's just completely washed. It's completely washed out. Um, it doesn't have anything to say concretely about war other than that it's bad but necessary. It doesn't have anything to say about, you know, class other than they're different. It doesn't have anything to say about, you know, what it means to lose a son other than it's sad. Like One of their sons doesn't even die in war. He dies on the Titanic. What is possibly my favorite scene in the movie. <laughs> and the wildest thing is like, they don't even talk about the Titanic and whether or not it was concerning that we were being so like expansionist and so luxurious and like, 
I don't know, like, it has nothing to say about anything, simply like tragedy exists and it affects the rich. And it's like, yeah, you know who tragedy affects more? People who aren't rich. Yeah, like those people in those concentration camps or, you know, the, all those kids who died in the Friends of World War One. The, the movie really hits its apex towards the end when it decides that the world has gone crazy. Uh, so let's talk about the actual thesis statement of this movie now that we're here, which is we watch all of this happen and the movie at the end of the day, again, like a literal thesis they give to us. Well, wasn't it better in the good old days? Back in our good war wars, the world was saying, but now we've just had World War One, and everything's crazy, and the rich are marrying the poor, and I bet we'll have another World War because things are just so crazy. And surely us, the adults in charge, have nothing to do with this. It's these terrible children. Yeah, it's like it's weird to see a movie that came out on the cusp of World War Two happening, right? Like Hitler just got declared Führer of all Germany at this when, when the year this movie came out. This is a movie that really understands that you know the world is about to get a lot worse. And yet all it has to say is, weren't, weren't things better in the good old days? Why can't we just go back to that? And it's like... It's such regressive, conservative thinking that doesn't fix the problems at hand because it doesn't care about the problems at hand. And what it cares about is comfort, right? Like, why couldn't we just be comfortable? Why did things have to change? Surely it is not our fault from the choices we made that things are bad now, which is the, like... There's no introspection. It is an ideology that is so, so I'm going to live in my dream and my dream will not affect reality of like, ah, uh, well, surely the way I think cannot be problematic and cannot have caused this. Therefore, it is the fault of these teens and 20 year olds who have literally never gotten to make choices. Before. I mean, it goes to show that this myth, right? The myth that there was some sort of good old days never existed because people have been saying that wishing, forever, wishing for the good old days since, you know, written history there's always something people want to point at as like this things were good then and they're worse now and it's like the only people who can ever point at that though is the upper crust because yeah, for the low class fun fact it has always been bad for the people the minorities of the world it has always been terrible and it's it's just it's very it's very frustrating to like especially to see something like this play out when like i know just from hindsight that world war ii is about to happen and shit's about to get a lot a lot worse and the thing is is that at this point the only difference between britain and germany is that britain was exporting all uh, deporting all of their jews back to germany yeah. like that's it and same thing with the united states you know it's just it sucks to to see these people be to see these people win three oscars for a movie for, that just says wow wouldn't it be better if we were back in the good old days good old days it's just watching these rich people be like ah yes isn't it so great to be rich i'm, I'm low-key excited and also dreading <laughs> the the movies that we're gonna get during and post world war ii because we're gonna we're, we're gonna get to those movies that people point at point to when they mention the good old days today yeah you know, like, uh, you're gone with the winds and such, right? Like, there are movies that are going to start coming out that we're going to have to watch that people say, those movies were the good old days. That's what the good old days were like, were those movies. I don't know. It's going to be wild because this movie is... is already like, doing that. It's already it's trying to point at a time before and saying, these are the good old days. These are the good old days. The nothingness and the boringness of this movie, coupled with the actual statements it's making, is genuinely horrifying. It's, it's insidious in a very boring way. So speaking, I guess, of slightly less insidious things, but also of nonetheless insidious things, Frank Lloyd, our boy, uh, started 
the Oscars and also gave himself three Oscars for this movie, including an Oscar for a movie we didn't get to see. Yeah, he, The Divine Lady, which we were supposed to watch, but we couldn't, we could literally could not find a copy of. It was supposed to win an Oscar for... It I did win an Oscar. It, well, yeah, it won an Oscar for, I believe, Best Picture, but not Best Director. Um, this one, he gets both. He gets Best Picture and Best Director. And we're going to watch one more of his in which he wins. He gives himself just, you know, to even the odds a little bit, one last Best Director. Um, I may have that backwards, I think. He has to get four. But he's gonna, he, he wants four and he wants it even. He wants an even yeah. number of, of Best Picture and Best Director, you know, paired up. Um, it's definitely a very, um, what's the word I used before, masturbatory? Like, I think this, is this the first dual win this is the way. first dual win ever in oscars ever history in oscars history so you know i'm sure that had nothing to do with his position I'm, in oscars yeah. i'm sure there's no reason frank the other one thought he should have won yeah <laughs> um, uh frank capra capra who i want to talk about some good things about this movie because I think this movie does have some good things. I think primarily... Queen Victoria dies in this movie, so that's yes, a good thing. Queen Victoria dies in the middle of this movie, and we don't get to see the body, unfortunately. So, you know, no body, no crime. The, the, I think the big thing about this movie that I like is I think the, the two leads, the lead mom and dad, Robert and Jane, I think have really good chemistry. It's one of the first times we've seen a couple actually love each other. Yeah. Uh, with the husband genuinely just loving his wife, and that is nice. And supporting his wife. Yeah. At no point in this movie does he belittle her. Um, at no point in this movie does he talk down to her. He sees them as equal in marriage. He acts like they're equals in marriage. It's kind of awesome. It is it's genuinely nice. That only they get this because the poor couple doesn't get this. Chemistry. No, the, the poor couple are always arguing. He eventually becomes a drunk and like hints at abusing them. And it's awful. <laughs> um, and then I think the other... And yeah, like the, the, the other... The other leads, um, while they have good chemistry, I wouldn't say their chemistry is the eldest son and his childhood friend who he yeah. marries. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who die in the Titanic. The movie's so fucking boring, it's two hours long. It's two hours long and very little happens. Very little happens, because again, most of this movie is montages. Um, but like these two, this, this honeymoon couple who, mm -hmm. dies, who die in the Titanic. On their honeymoon. On their honeymoon. Um, they have good chemistry, but I wouldn't call it loving chemistry. It's very like we're young and don't really know what we're doing chemistry. I, I do appreciate it because he doesn't talk down to her at any point. Nasty freak about it. He's not a nasty freak. He never spies on her while she's changing. Um, something his younger brother does. Uh, literally stalks the person he's into. This movie genuinely has two pretty, like I would say good couples that I don't feel gross about, which is hard to find in these movies. I think this is the first time we've seen a couple that wasn't like uncomfortable yeah, in their dynamic. Really balances it up by giving us two other couples that are yeah that are very problematic, very problematic um, and uncomfortable i would i would say the thing about this movie that i also really liked is i do think that this movie has some really good shots uh it has i think one good shot and lots of other very bad very shots. bad shots including what i what i'm going to say ironically is the most amazing special effects shot we have seen so far <laughs> Um, I think this is going to be my favorite moment of this movie. Oh, we're really getting there early. We're getting there early. Just because I think there's not much to talk about with this one. I think my favorite moment in this movie is when the eldest son and his fiance, future wife, are sitting at the beach talking about how much they love each other and shit. And then you hear a plane and they look up and he goes, oh my god, it's... What's his name? He successfully flew across the English Channel. And then the camera cuts to what is clearly a paper airplane held up by a stick just slowly moving across the screen. <laughs> it is the funniest thing I have ever seen in any of these movies. It's so good. 
think my favorite scene is going to lead into a sort of a discussion. Yeah. Uh, but my favorite scene slash scenes is the ending sequence after they've celebrated a new New Year's without their babies. And it cuts to a cavalcade going to heaven. Oh my god, yes. Where it is implied all of our beautiful British boys went to heaven. And, and also eventually these two old crusty British people will also go to heaven. This, I think, an underlying theme of this movie that doesn't get touched on because I don't think they were, Frank Lloyd was critical of this imagery, is religion is just peppered through the war. Uh, Very Christian, cross Jesus religion specifically. It is wild to me, like, how hand in hand uh, nationality and Christian values already are at this point in history. Yeah, it's it's definitely, I think, very funny how ham-fisted it is because it does feel like the director is throwing it in not because he thinks it adds anything, but because he thinks it's it has to be there. Yeah, like, um, oh, well, it's okay that these boys are dying in this montage because there's also, a, in but, this montage, a Jesus. So we know they're dying and we, going we, to heaven. We get to, watch, we get to watch, like, the entire French countryside reduced to, like, flat land, but this cross of Jesus maintains. It's so egregious. Yeah. The, there, there is no questioning of war because it's fine and it's godly. Yeah, it's weird. You know how God loved murder? For It's so frustrating to have to watch, I think, so many movies in which, like, grasp on symbolism has been slackened a little bit. It doesn't add up to something greater. It doesn't add up to, like, an, an amazing message or anything. It's just peppered in. And yeah, I lied. I have another favorite. I have a more favorite scene. Oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry that I lied to you. That's all right. But my most favorite scene is, in fact, the scene in which the the New Age has come and we're hitting the time after World War One when everything is terrible and new and bad. We have these black people playing music. And they give us a bunch of newspaper clippings that say, divorce, 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 now orgies on a rise. Oh. And it's just a bunch of paper clippings of, like, The talking points of every conservative you've ever heard of, like, well, now in the new age, we have all of these single mothers. And it's so on the nose and so unchanging. It is hysterical. It is bananas. But also in this list of terrible, awful things is uh, on a street corner, they have the young communist party. Oh, yeah. I love this guy. Love this guy. He's not, not saying any actual communist rhetoric. No. I mean, he's just yelling about how, you know, things are bad. Yeah. Things are bad. Things, things are, are bad. bad. And things are bad. And um, but I He like is it, implied to be one of the bad things. I, I will say I like that it's in it because I feel like no I feel like a movie made today wouldn't even would dare, not include would not dare to admit that at some point in British history there was a very popular British Communist Party. Yeah. Which is still around by the way. Um, like they're they're still doing stuff. They're just not as, you know, prolific as they used to be uh so i like that newspaper shot of all of the very dumb newspapers is my favorite scene i i kind of want to talk about the relationship between the younger brother and fanny the poor showgirl which is the actress slash dancer slash dancer um slash singer at some point she is the daughter of the drunk man she's the daughter of the servant flamley And she, at one point, I think does a thing that is genuinely interesting in which she's in love with this creep. Just, I hate, I hate the young son so much. He's like super pro-war. 
He's like into watching women while they don't know he's there. He's just like the worst. A lot of red flags, this guy. A lot of red flags, this guy. This guy does have an amazing conversation with his dad in which he laments that his brother died in the Titanic because so that he because now he can't go to war. Bananas thing like, God, I wish my brother didn't get owned on the Titanic so that I could go get owned by the Germans. And like he gets his wish eventually. He does he, he die. Does get to go get owned by the Germans. But he never like changes or anything. No, <laughs> he continues time. to love war while he's at war. There, there is like a, I would say an exchange in this movie between him and Fanny that almost hints at something, but like the movie just handles it so clumsily yeah. and the dialogue is so uh, poor at like getting across. The only reason I even picked up on it is because the actor's like demeanor changes. Yeah kind of towards the ending of the scene and in as it we shift into the next one mm -hmm. um but i was like struggling to figure out why for a bit yeah so i kind of like this same scene but for the opposite reason which is i really like i didn't say i liked the scene but oh, okay. well so he over the course of this scene him and fanny are talking in a, a dressing room i guess yeah and she's, she's like for late for her show but they keep talking anyway anyway because it's a movie and you know people can just time doesn't mean anything but um he seems to be very insistent on two things. One, her telling him goodbye, and two, asking her to marry him. Which Fanny, and I think a very smart move for the time, uh, refuses because she's really young and she doesn't want to be a widow because at that time, if you were a widow, like that was it. Yeah. You were done, you could never get married again. And after World War One, that sort of stops being such a big cliche. Yeah, so many little kids died in that war that a lot of people remarried and kind of just yeah it stopped it, being such yeah. a black mark on it but at the time like it still was a huge thing and fanny was like well we'll get married when you come back and he's like implied not knowing whether or not he's gonna come back yeah the, the implication is that he at this point believes that he's uh ran out of luck that he's gonna not that this is gonna be his last time seeing her that he's not gonna come back and i honestly don't think he even because i because like i assume in the day that he had to leave mm -hmm. they would actually have gotten married I do think he just wanted to hear the yes yeah. so that he could just kind of like know. But I, I think it's really smart of Fanny to be like, nah, dude, you might die at war and then I'll never be able to get married again. So like, yeah, I love you, but I'm not going to ruin my entire future for a dude who might die. No, for sure. But I'm, what I'm saying And is I think that, that's rad of Fanny. Yeah, no, I agree. But I, I do think one of the things is like, like she, she could have said yes because they wouldn't have gotten married. Nah. I'm saying get owned. He's fucking sucks. No, he definitely sucks. Absolutely. And again, this movie should have done a better job at like portraying his character change and growth, but it doesn't have time for that. Nah. This movie literally spends time on the wildest of things. I think at one point we watch most of a play that the characters are watching. We watch like anything the characters watch, we also watch. And every time it's like 10 minutes of them watching this parade, them watching this play. Them and watching this funeral procession that we don't get to see. Yeah, and it's wild. slowly turned from left to right. It is for a two-hour movie. It spends so little time on the action that's happening, and so much time on the nothing these people are doing. Yeah, and sometimes it's like vaguely symbolic, but a lot of the times it's not. Or like the vague symbolism could have been said in I don't know a minute. <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't. It doesn't quite hit the way I think the movie wants it to emotionally and it and for it for a two-hour movie it really drags I have one last thing that we need to go that's to true game. I think I just I want to end talking about the movie on a dialogue from the movie in which they're kind of summary summarizing what the war taught us and this husband is like it 
taught us dignity, greatness, and peace. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you want to know how old these actors were? Oh, gosh. Do you want to know how old these actors were? Are you ready to know? I, this implies that there's some age differences. All right. I want, we're going to start, I think we're going to start, we're going to start at the beginning. We're going to start with Jane Marriott. So the rich upper crust mom. Okay. Jane Marriott, how old do you think she was when this movie came out? Jane Marriott. This is another movie where they spend a lot of the movie in like old makeup. It's true. I'm going to say that she was 26. Right on the money, you were off by a year. She was 27. She was born in 1906. Uh, the actress Diana Winyard uh, was 27. Clifford Brooke, who played Robert Marriott, the dad. The, the general. Our general father, the only guy who gets to live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he makes the only, he's the only man we get to see at the end of the movie. I don't think their age difference is super big. I'm going to say that he's in his 30s. 30s? Do you want to give me a range? I want. I need you to give me an exact age. An exact. I don't think he's that much older than her. If she's 27, I'll say he's 34. 34? Yeah. You were off by more than a decade. Oh he my was god. 46. He was 46. He was two, almost two decades oh, older than god. her. Oh god. He was born in 1887. Oh, that's so gross. Um, especially for how much time they spend kissing. They spend say, so much time making out. I will say, this guy looks amazing. He looks, he does not look that old. When I saw his age, my eyes like popped out of their sockets. I was like, you shitting me? This guy was 46? Ew. Oh my God. All right. Alfred Bridges, our, our drunk butler. Oh, I think he's like 60. 60? Yeah. Okay. Herbert Munden was the name of the actor. He looks super old and awful. So... Um, yeah, he was actually well-known. Part of the reason why he was well-known for playing, like, big buffoonish characters is because he had really large jowls. I'm, I'm trying to think of a character that he looks like, but he kind of looks like Jasper from, like, the old 101 Dalmatians cartoon. Yeah, he does kind of. He has really big jowls. Um, he was 35. Wow. 35, so you're off by three decades. Yeah, I... This is what I meant when it was a doozy. It is, like, like, like <laughs> he, curveballs after curveballs for this one. Okay. Okay. So Ellen Bridges, Alfred's wife, uh, um, who was played by Una O'Connor, an Irish icon. She was a character actor for almost six decades, known for playing mousy comedic women. Yeah, I'm gonna say she. Honestly, I feel like she was was in her 30s as well. I'm gonna say like 30, on the money. She was 53. Oh my god! Oh no, that's bad in the opposite way. <laughs> she was literally just swap the numbers. Oh my god! Yeah, she was, um, she was almost 18 years older than this. Than, uh, oh, I didn't want to be mean to her, but I did not think she looked great she, in this movie. I, I, I thought they looked, both just looked really old. They both do just look really old. I honestly thought she looked kind of okay. I didn't. I wouldn't have guessed she was 50. I, would have I wouldn't have guessed she was, guessed she was 50. I also thought this guy was like 60. I wouldn't have guessed she was 50. That's wild. Both of these relationships are bad, but in not ways I expected. Okay, John Warburton mm -hmm. played. Eddie Marriott, the older brother. The older brother. The older brother, who also, I told you this earlier, went on to play uh, the Romulan known as the Centurion oh, in Star Trek. He's so happy looking he in looks, Star Wars. He, and he's so old, he looks nothing like himself. No. Um, I, I, I honestly feel like he's probably in, I'm going to say 28. 28. Really close. He was 30. Dang, okay. That's closer than I've been for a minute. Which means that he was three years older than his mom. <laughs> Ew! Uh, the woman who played his mother, I should say. Oh my god, Hollywood, why are you so terrible? Um, okay. Edith Harris, uh, who is uh, the, the rich... The rich friend who childhood best friend gets who, with who Eddie. Eddie played by Margaret Lindsay. 
I'm going to say she's 22. She would have been 23 at the time. Nice. Very close. She was born in 1910. Frank Lawton, who played Joe Marriott. I do hate him so much. And I'm going to say that he's... I'm going to say he's in his 30s, like his older brother. I'm going to say they were like the same age. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give me like an exactly like 30. 30, exactly 30? He was 29. Uh, Frank Lawton was 29 when this movie came out, which also makes he... him two years older than looks like he's made of play-doh he looks like a like a fred astaire type very just like big head thin neck that's what i meant by made of play-doh yeah very twinkish no i i i don't think he's twinkish i think he's like james moriarty is how i would describe him yeah he's a very foppish dandy yeah he looks like evil queer baiting (laughs) (laughs) that's really funny i like that and then finally Mm -hmm. Ursula Jeans, great name, who played Fanny Bridges, the dancer, the final love interest. Final love interest. How old is she when this movie came out? I, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with 28. 28. She was 27. Dang. Um, which does make her the same age as Diana Win- Winyard. <laughs> her mother. Who played, who played no. her mother's friend. Played her mother's friend. <sighs> Acting, what a time. What an industry. What a, what a fucking awful... What a terrible movie. What a terrible um, movie so, made. so Andy, uh, my co-host. Uh huh. What we did, we did our favorite scenes, uh, and now we have to say whether we think this movie deserves an Oscar or two Oscars or three Oscars or three Oscars. And uh, no, no. It doesn't deserve any Oscars. No. It's awful. It's awful and boring and pushes terrible ideology okay so it won best picture best director best art direction oh incorrect oh and dana diana winyard was nominated for best actress but she lost to katherine hepburn which makes sense katherine hepburn is a powerhouse (laughs) she's gonna be we're gonna see her hopefully soon um, I love her. I want to talk about her because she's like an amazing character as a person. Her, like her. I was going to say, she's just an amazing person. Her and Audrey Hepburn, both not, not related, but both amazing people in different ways. Your last name is Hepburn, just guaranteed to be a good guaranteed person. Guaranteed to be a good actress. Fuck this movie. Fuck this tradition. Yeah, no, absolutely not. This movie doesn't deserve, we can cut that out. I don't think this movie deserves any of its awards. I think there are movies that came out around the same time that probably I would have definitely preferred to have watched. I definitely think that this movie was a gimme to to Lloyd for for his many years of service. I like Frank Capra feel this was stolen. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I, I think I'm there with you. I, I'm Frank Capra, I also think that that... I don't know. know what movie you made, and I don't know if I should actually be endorsing it, but... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this movie sucked. And it didn't even suck... Like, like in Grand, interesting like ways. Grand Hotel. It didn't even have the decency to suck in interesting ways. I mean, we had to talk about, like, the learn about the Boer Wars, and that was um, terrible but nice. Yeah. I, I will, yeah, I guess that was educational in some way. I don't know. Maybe this movie could have done with, like, an end-of-the-movie murder mystery. Uh, you know what? I feel like lots of movies need just an end-of-the-movie murder mystery. Just have Columbo walk in and, like, the last ten minutes of your movie, like, one more thing, one more thing. It'd be Columbo. The, the only good cop is Columbo. The only good cop is Columbo. Lieutenant sergeant for all his career for his for 60 years his dog named dog Donna, is there anything else we need to do well where can i find you you can find well you can find me uh here on twitter at royalty underscore valance and uh that's it do you do any other podcasts 
yeah i do a podcast with my buddy tony over at direct2.video where we pair movies like fine wine and uh hopefully sometime soon or around the time that this episode comes out we should have done our penultimate i believe penultimate uh disney fairies movie so keep an ear out only one more after that after we watch that one (laughs) at the time of recording i have not seen it in a month (laughs) Um, and you can find me at newly redone handle because I kept forgetting my old one, Mavis Evergreen, on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Mavis is spelled um, weird, but you know, I trust you. You can find our podcast uh, on any podcatcher that you decide to use. If you use iTunes, we'd really like it if you rated us five stars, but otherwise you can find us at timehonoredpictures.com. Um, and, uh, real quick, I think I also want to apologize for not releasing an episode last month, but we've been gone for a month. We've been gone for a month. We're back. We didn't die. I know we haven't gotten to the titular 20 episodes of security, but, but, um, yeah, we, we, uh, we moved. So I guess it's more accurate to say I moved. I guess you also moved. We moved. So we are no longer, I am no longer in that trapped in the hell state of Arizona. I've returned to college. Thanks for your patience. We should uh, be going back to our monthly schedule. As always, thank you for listening. And remember, old movies should have the same morals you have now. Mm -hmm. Uh, No movie deserves an Oscar. How many? Two movies. Two movies? So far, two movies deserve an Oscar. Two movies. Deserve one Oscar. Deserve one Oscar, and they get to share. (laughs) Yeah, so in 1935, you can join us for It Happened One Night. Directed by Frank Capra. Yeah, our boy. Oh boy, he's got, he gets his comeuppance. And this one is, this one, oh my God. This one wins all five major Academy Awards. Does it? Yeah, this is the first supermarket sweep. We don't actually know if this movie's good. We haven't watched it yet. So we'll see. You sound like Caldwell from that, like, The Boys episode. The Boys. It's us, The Boys. Got it. Mother, I'm one of the boys now. (laughs)